Welcome to the Journal of the Southwest Radio Hour, produced by the University of Arizona Southwest Center. I'm Jeff Bannister. Today we're speaking with Dr. Raquel Rubio Goldsmith, co-director of the Binational Migration Institute in the University of Arizona's Department of Mexican American Studies. Dr. Rubio Goldsmith taught history at Pima Community College from 1969 until 1999 when she retired from that post. If there is indeed a line between Raquel's research and civic engagement, it is extremely fuzzy at best. Since the late 1960s, she has worked on a diversity of immigrant rights initiatives in Tucson and the greater Southwest, and she has led numerous community-based research projects focused on the effects of U.S. immigration and border enforcement policies on Mexicano and Latino communities. Raquel makes me proud to call Tucson my home. Well, uh, Raquel, welcome to Journal of the Southwest Radio Hour. Gracias. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you. So I was thinking about a conversation that we had many years ago. We were at Big Jim Griffith's um, summer party, the Club Pimalteño summer party. (laughs) (laughs) And you were telling me about your childhood in and around Douglas, and then ultimately how you ended up at the National Autonomous University, UNAM, in Mexico City. Uh, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that experience. Yes, well, uh, it's uh, it's always good to remember, and maybe I remember it differently each time. <laughs> <laughs> Different things pop up. But um, my parents are both not from Arizona. Uh, they were both what one could call the the result of the Mexican Revolution, both of their families were totally uprooted. And so as young people, they ended up in Douglas. My father's family was from the Sierra of Chihuahua. And uh, so it's about 1912, actually, with the year he was born. My grandmother had to leave because her husband had been killed. We never knew whether he was on the side of Pancho Villa or on the side of the people against him. You know, it was, it's, my grandmother never talked about the revolution. She never talked about Mexico. Hmm. And so she left, she was pregnant with my father. He had two other children, went to El Paso to live with a sister she had there who had married a, a man from El Paso. And so he ended up in, he ended up in Douglas. They needed domestic labor there. There were a lot of lone men, you know, the whole thing that happens with these mining towns at that time, with a lot of single men coming in, or mm-hmm. men without their families. And so she uh, she was a seamstress and made her living that way. So my father grew up there. He went through the eighth grade uh, and then stopped so that she could stop working, and he, he supported her. And my mother... Uh, both of her parents are Norteños. That is, her grandfather on her father's side was from Monterrey. Mm-hmm. He became a lawyer, went to Mexico City, and ended up as a district judge. He was sent to Muleje, California to do some cases, met a young woman there, and married her. Mm. So my mother had like Muleje and Monterrey, you know, all kind of mixed together. And then later, uh, her mother was uh, from Cocospera, Sonora. It's a long story. But anyway, we're a real Norteño family. My parents were both brought up by very Norteños. 
So our household was very much um, geared to the Norteño culture. My father, my grandmother, my father's mother lived with us all my life. He was there and was a very strong presence in the household, which were things like, you know, girls can't wear pants, girls can't skate, girls can't go swimming, girls can't ride bikes. <laughs> she had ridden horses, you know, mm -hmm. but it was like, que dirá la gente all the time. And my mother was much different. She wanted us to learn how to swim and skate and ride our bikes and go out. She was very modern in that way. So there was always a, a tension in that. And then I remember on our block, there were the Langford family, which has just recently come up in the news. The Langford family was a Mormon family that went constantly to Mexico because Mr. Langford had another family there. And the summer, he'd take all his 12 children, and they'd go spend the summer in Mexico. But it was that one Mormon family, and then there was a, a Mexican-American Lutheran family. And so we would have religious wars on our block <laughs> because the real truth was Catholic. No, the real truth was Lutheran. No, the real truth was the Book of Mormon. <laughs> and we were all kind of the same age, and we would just fight and fight. And then the next day we'd be best friends, you know, we'd skate and play jacks and do all those kinds of things together. So it was a, it was an exciting childhood. And two blocks east of my house was Clawson Elementary School. And two blocks west of my house was 7th Street School Elementary. And the 7th Street was for Mexican children and Clawson was for Anglo children. And so here my good friend Langford went to Clawson, and then there was a family there whose grandmothers were both Mexican, but they had married uh, American engineers, and so their last name was Davis, and so they went to Clawson. And they were such good friends, and I went, I'd go to seven. And so that was the first time that I really understood that there was a big difference. It was like my very best friends, in a way, could not go to the same wow. school that mm -hmm. I went to. And yet our block was very integrated, mm -hmm. but, <clears throat> but we had always all played together. And so that really kind of taught me a heavy lesson I didn't understand exactly, but then I, I started understanding uh, that my father would tell us, for example, well, don't go, don't go over to 10th Street, just go to the church. Immaculate Conception was on 10th Street. And we were, the, the city was, the town was really segregated racially. And 10th Street, already 6th Street was kind of the end, but as you got to 10th Street, there were just fewer Mexicans. And after 10th Street, there weren't any Mexicans. Up until you got to 15th Street, then the those streets up there, there were Mexicans. So you had to kind of keep an eye. Not that anybody would beat you up or anything. For boys, it was that way. Boys would get into fights. Mm -hmm. But um, for the girls, well, we just kind of stay out of the way, you know, not, not get in the way. And so... I went to Loretto School, which was on 14th Street. So I used to have to walk and go through neighborhoods that were all Anglo. 
And so I remember my mother saying, we just have to be very careful. Walk in the middle of the street. <laughs> because wow. it was avenues. And so don't walk close to the street so you don't get into trouble mm -hmm. with a dog or step on somebody's plants or, you know. Mm -hmm. So it was always... Don't walk close to the houses. Don't walk close uh -huh. to the houses. Walk in the middle of the street. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they weren't... At that time, the avenues were not paved. So you'd walk in the middle of the street and you're... Douglas has really strong winds. Uh -huh. And I can remember the little rocks hitting my legs. <laughs> the wind mm. would be so strong mm. because of the dust that would raise up and the tumbleweeds, mm. you know, rolling down the streets. I've had that experience in mm -hmm. Douglas and Adolfo. Yeah. The, the wind. The wind is really there. strong. Mm -hmm. and, um, but then at some point, my father got me a bike. Oh, that was so glorious to have a bike. Uh, he got it, was a secondhand bike. It had chrome fenders can you believe <laughs> chrome fenders everybody it was it was everybody's envy because i had chrome fenders <laughs> on my bike and i could ride my bike to school so that was much better because we'd come home for lunch there wasn't a cafeteria and i hated taking lunch so i'd come home for lunch you know run home run back and then later that would happen with going to high school which was even further that was on 15th street so, were you, and, and by the time you arrived in high school, were you all back together again? Or uh, yeah, still it was it was integrated then. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But integration is a funny word to use in that way, mm -hmm. because there was a school that was just for black children. It was uh, over like on Fourth or Fifth Street and Eighth Avenue, and there weren't many black families, African American families, and they had grades one through eight. And after the eighth grade, they couldn't go to high school. Wow. But they integrated it because there was a real good football player, hmm. Joe Lewis. And so the year I went in, I went into high school. It was a senior high school because it was, they had seventh, eighth, and ninth grade in the junior high, and then 10, 11, and 12 in the senior high. And so I went into the 10th grade. When I went into the 10th grade, he had been there a year, I think, on the football team already. But it caused a lot of problems because even if Douglas had taken him in, and I don't remember any other African-American student there while I was there. There may have been, but I don't remember anyone. Um, they'd go to El Paso to play. Well, he couldn't play because El Paso wouldn't let him play. He'd go to Safford. You know, there were places he'd go, but they wouldn't let him play. So it was like uh, a strange kind of integration. This was before Brown. You mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. This was like in, I was there in, I graduated in 52. So that must have been like 49, 50. So that was before uh, Brown versus. So anyway, um, but all through school, we were segregated in different ways. For example, if you got out of elementary school, then you went into middle school. The middle school was integrated, but not the, not the sections. Like there would be section one, two, three, four, and five, and section one, two, and three would be Anglo, and four and five would be the Mexican sections. Mm -hmm. So you might run into each other on the playground, but you didn't have class mm -hmm. with anybody. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then, but by junior high that had kind of broken down it was still very divided but not quite as much as it had been 
it would have been definite before. And in high school, I have to tell you, I hated high school. <laughs> mm-hmm. Here, here. <laughs> I hated it. The only good memory I have of high school is being in the band. <laughs> and that was a wonderful experience. <laughs> I had taken music. The head of the music department for the whole school was a man by the name of Mr. Udke. He was a wonderful, gentle, loving person, probably from Minnesota or somewhere, you know, and just always had a smile on his face. But he could be very stern. But he was in charge of the band, the high school band, the high school orchestra, and the music programs. So when I was in middle school, he started a program to start people on orchestras in the middle school so that he would have people in high school, right? Because the orchestra was not an easy thing for people to do. So they started a program where you could take violin, and I wanted to take violin. So I signed up, and it turned out that violin was taught during my spelling class. So, and this is an image I will never forget. My mother was very, very pregnant at that time with one of my brothers. I'm the eldest of, of nine. Mm-hmm. Um, she wanted, if I wanted to take violin, she wanted me to take it. And she was always very concerned with our schooling. And um, so she went to see Mr. Carlson, who was the principal of the, not Mr. Carlson, Mr. Spencer. Mr. Spencer was the principal of the middle school. And she went to see him, to talk to him about changing my class around, which would mean that I would take spelling with an Anglo class because one of the Anglo sections had a study hall during the violin time. If they changed my section, then I could take violin and not miss my spelling class. So I remember her sitting outside his office you know, where the secretary was, there was a, a glass division with a hallway, so I could see her sitting in there waiting to see him. And every time we'd go out of class and come out of recess, whatever, she was still sitting still there. there huh? She was still there. She was still there. And so then when I went home for lunch, you know, she had just gotten there to have lunch for Dad. She had left it fixed in the morning before she left because he came home for lunch. And she said, well, that Mr. Carlson had said no. I mean, Mr. Spencer had said no. He said, don't worry. I know the superintendent. I'm going to go see him. So a couple of days later, he went to see Mr. Carlson. And then I was called into the office by to Mr. Spencer's office and told that I would not have spelling class, that I would have to do the spelling on my own if I wanted to take violin. And so, but they wouldn't change my section, see. <laughs> My mother was upset, and so <laughs> it was, I didn't care. I was going to take violin, so mm-hmm. that was good. So anyway, <laughs> that precisely that was a really important thing in my academic life because when I got to high school and I had been involved in violin, and I loved that. I had piano lessons with the nuns, um, and those were the Mexican nuns, which I'll tell you about mm-hmm. too, which is interesting. Um, the... I always stayed both with the orchestra and I, you know, played in the first 
the secondary orchestra and then the first orchestra because I stuck with the violin. I played it very badly, but, you know, it was enough to be in it. And um, so when I got to go to high school that summer, the summer before my sophomore year, uh, there was this announcement that came out that the high school band was looking for musicians and to go see the new director. And uh, I thought, well, that sounds good because the violin was, uh, you know, really kind of slow and stuff, and the band seemed like fun. Hmm. So I went and joined in, and they had instruments. You'd rent the instrument for a very small amount. Well, it wasn't small at that time. It was a lot, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that you could rent the instrument. And so how I didn't know how to blow anything, and he needed someone, <laughs> you know, they needed trumpets and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, I started out with a bass saxophone, which is huge. It's so heavy. Yeah. But I didn't know anything else. I mean, he's, he wanted me to do that. So I said, okay. He said, well, with a bass, you'll get started. It's an easy way to start. Okay. So all summer, you know, I was working on the bass saxophone and then, the season started, you go out on marching band, you mm. know, take this heavy instrument, you're out there on the football field marching, she marching, is. marching every morning. And he was just a wonderful band director, but he worked us to death. He had been in the Marine Band. Oh, wow. He played the, <laughs> the trombone. He was a great trombone player. But there was something else he didn't know. He didn't know that the band was not integrated. He didn't know that Mexicans weren't supposed to be in the band. <laughs> that would have been news to him, huh? Yeah, and so he was like from, I don't know, North Dakota or somewhere, right? And he had gone to the Army and, you know, was a Marine. Uh, so he came back and he signed up all these Mexicans during the summer. <laughs> and, and so we go, we start playing, and it was a really integrated band, wow. right? And... Uh, so somebody called him on the carpet for it, but it was already too late. I mean, they wanted a band, uh -huh. and he and he said, "Well, they're all doing okay, you know. I'll keep it under control, you know, whatever." So we all loved it. We had a wonderful oh, uh, time, yeah. and he was just this. He really pressed us hard. He made us work really hard, mm -hmm. and we had. And he was very, very. Uh, he was just a very good person, mm -hmm. right? So. It was so much fun to be in the band. We'd go to El Paso with a football game, and then we'd go on parades. You know, the rodeo parade, and the we went to the here in Tucson, the rodeo parade. No, the rodeo parade in Douglas. But then we went oh, to yeah, El Paso. No, oh. was it Phoenix or El, pa El Paso? I think we went to the Fiesta mm -hmm. Bowl parade. Nearly froze to death. It was so <laughs> cold. But you know, we were going places. It was just so much fun. Mm. But we had one really experienced that was very difficult. We came to Tucson when they have band day. The bands from all over the state come and they meet here at the university. And it's wonderful because we had been practicing, getting ready for what we were gonna play. You go up and you have your moment, you know, you play and then you also play all together. Everybody would be up on the stage at the same time. So we had been looking forward to this for a long time. We came up, and they put out a schedule. You get a rehearsal moment, and then you get the moment that you play. And so we were all hanging around in our uniforms, all the bands. You know, you had your uniforms on, your instruments and stuff. 
and hanging around Centennial Hall waiting for your turn. And, well, you had to wait hours. I mean, there were tons of bands. And uh, so a group of us were under the olive trees there on the west side because uh, it was in the spring. It was pretty warm. You had these wool uniforms. Oh, you my know? gosh. I can't imagine. <laughs> so everybody had taken off their jackets, and mm-hmm. we were just sitting around, hanging out, just having fun. And um, these young men passed by in their red uniforms and started calling us greasers and beaners. Mm-hmm. And so one of the guys in our band, Picone, <laughs> he got real mad. He was a real tall guy, real dark. He played the pickle, <laughs> and he carried my bass saxophone for me sometimes because it was so heavy. His girlfriend uh, would help out, too. She'd help me with my bass because they felt sorry for me. <laughs> but anyway, we were sitting there, and he got really angry. So he came up and yelled back at him. Then he started a fist fight. <laughs> so every all the guys started fighting. Wow. And so, of course, right away, you know, somebody in authority came by and stopped it. So we were thrown out. Mm. We weren't allowed to compete. Jeez. Oh, man. Heartbreaking. Well, our poor director, I mean, they had spent all this money bringing us, Mm -hmm. and then we couldn't compete. He probably got in trouble, too. So I swore to God I would never come back to Tucson. (laughs) I would never have anything to do with Tucson. (laughs) It was the worst in the world because they were were boys from Tucson High. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was like, how could that be? How could we come to a place? It was like music was sacred, you know? And mm-hmm. you, there were like places where that shouldn't happen, mm-hmm. and it happened. And so I thought I'd never come back. So don't ever say never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I spent look at most, you now. <laughs> I spent most of the years of my life in Tucson, <laughs> <Yeah>. Arizona. <laughs> so... Uh, but what yeah. an incredible story of that, that you know, that moment just before yeah. the, the big push for civil rights in, in the United right. States. Right, that, that was in 1950, it was either in the fall of 51 or the spring of 52. Mm-hmm. And see, I had gone in and I wasn't supposed to graduate, I was supposed to be a junior I was so angry at the racism. I, I was just always, I get upset every day because I had been counseled into all these business courses, hmm. right? But I was determined I was going to go to college. And I had a lot of, my mother always pushed me. And I had a teacher that I had had in the second grade, Miss Woods, who always told me, you have to go to college, you have to go to college. And she would Every time she'd see me, she'd come tell me, you know, you, what are you doing mm-hmm. to get there? So when I went in to register in high school, I told the counselor that I wanted to go to college. And he said, well, you know, you have to take these other courses so you can get a job. And my mother, my mother had gone to high school, and so she had told me, well, it's good to learn shorthand and typing. You know, mm-hmm. that's a good thing to have. But I want you to do the other courses. And so we had... With a lot of struggle, arranged, and I took a course that would be college, you know, the required courses for college entrance, plus the business school things. The business was kind of a vocational course? It was kind Is of a vocational course, okay, yeah. And, and so I went ahead and took it, which was good. You know, I learned mm-hmm. shorthand and typing. And Mr. Rutke was a typing teacher, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, and so I loved band. 
But all the rest of my course were such, oh, I, I just would get so upset about so many things. And I was doing well, you know, I was getting good grades. That, that wasn't the problem, but I just was very unhappy. And then my very best friend died uh, very suddenly. She got sick and died. And I, I was just, I had no friends because I had been jumping. I was much younger than all my, than all my other kids. I was two years ahead. And so I was like younger, you know, at that age, it makes a big difference mm -hmm. because they could do things I couldn't do and, you know, all that. And my best friend had died. So I was in a bad place and I just hated the school. So I'd go home and I'd add up all my credits, you know. And so one day I finally figured out I had enough credits to graduate <laughs> at the end of my junior year in 52. I wouldn't have to go the third year. <laughs> I had taken so many classes. Hallelujah. So I'd go see my counselor. And said, um, I can graduate. He looked at me and said, No. And I showed him. He looked at it and looked at it. He said, no, you can't. You don't have a minor. Oh, I didn't know about the minor. So you had to have X number of credits for a minor. So I went home and I'd go through it over and over and over again. And then I remembered that when I was in the eighth grade, Mr. Utke had made arrangements for us to get high school credit for eighth grade orchestra because we played with a high school orchestra. <laughs> so I went back there and I talked to Mr. Utke. I said, remember? He said, yes, of course, it's there somewhere. We've written down someplace. So he brought it out and I took it to the counselor and so I had a music minor. <laughs> so I always have wonderful memories about my band experience. It was just wonderful. Wow, yeah. wow. So, but then I got out of school I couldn't get a social security card yet to work. You had to be 16. I was 15. I was going to be 16 in September. And so our family doctor, Dr. Atona, was very, you know, he knew my mother very well. He knew us all real well. And he kind of had known that, uh, I wanted, that I had graduated and that I had wanted to go to college. And, of course, there was no money for it. And um, I had gotten a couple of little scholarships, but it, you know it wasn't going to do it. I, there was just no way. And um, so he asked me if I wanted to work. And I oh yeah, I'd love to work. <laughs> His nurse was a, a good friend of my mom's, and. Uh, she ran his office, but it was just too much work to do the bills and be the nurse, you know, and do all those things. So he gave me a job. It was $20 a week. I had Thursday afternoons off, Thursday and Saturday afternoons off. And I was in charge of doing the janitorial work early in the morning and then doing all the bills. Hmm. That was my job. So that was, that was really neat because mm -hmm. in Douglas to get a job was like, mm -hmm. and then he, he was willing to let me work that summer even without a social security oh, number, yeah. right? <laughs> then when I got it in September, which was my birthday, then we were legal, right? So I saved every penny. In the meantime, my mother said, well, you know, you could always go to Mexico City because her family was living in Mexico City. They had been from there a long time. And um, one of her aunts was widowed and had no children and would often say to her, send one of the girls. You know. So my mother wrote to her and said, well, Raquel wants to go to the university. Do you think 
he could go there for a year. He wants to be a translator at the UN. <laughs> that was my goal, <laughs> to be a translator at the UN. I, well, that was so exciting. You know, you'd go to New York, you'd go see the world oh, and yeah. translate it. I knew Spanish and English, so mm -hmm. I'd go learn some French maybe or something. So my aunt, who had... Were you speaking, <laughs> you spoke Spanish largely in the home? Oh, or? yeah, we always yeah. spoke at home. Mm -hmm. My mother, from the, every one of us, all nine of us, she never let us speak English at home. We would speak it, but not around her. And um, because her whole thing was, how can I ever face my father taking children that don't speak Spanish? Because he <laughs> lived in Mexico City. Uh -huh. And it was like, how can I possibly have children that don't speak Spanish? And even if at school, you would be punished if you spoke Spanish. And they kept, you know, everywhere it was this push to not speak Spanish. My mother was adamant. And so we all learned Spanish, mm -hmm. and we learned it fairly well. Mm -hmm. And I, actually, I can remember, I must have been six or seven, I don't know. She came and she had these books that were part of the literacy program that Cárdenas had put in place that were used for literacy in Mexico. And her sister had sent us her some, and we would sit there in the kitchen after dinner sometimes, my younger sister and myself, and my mother would teach us, and we'd write words in Spanish. We'd do the, the literacy mm -hmm. uh, program. So yeah, she was determined that we speak. And my father also, he wanted to speak Spanish. So, but you know, my reading wasn't very good. It certainly was not like at university level. <laughs> that was going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, so my aunt said, yes, send her. And I went, and immediately I told her, well, I want to go to the university. <laughs> and one of my mother's sisters also had wanted to go to university. And she said, yes, go to the university, go to the university. Unam, that's where you got to go. That's the best place to go. My other aunt, because she was an older woman, a very, well, very uh, upper class with very strict ideas on what, how ladies should behave and all that, right? She said, well, no, because a good girl doesn't go to the university. Mm. Está la Universidad Femenina, which was new then. And maybe, no, she said, we should go to the Colegio Frances. And I was, oh my gosh, this is terrible. I had gone with nuns already. I knew what that was mm, about. Yeah. <laughs> and I would not go there. I thought, I'm not coming to Mexico City just to go to nuns. That's not going to work. So my younger aunt, my mother's sister, because the older one was my mother's aunt, okay. mm -hmm. um, helped me out. She said, look, I have a friend who works in the office of the rector de la universidad. I'm going to go talk to wow. her. So she did, and I got my transcripts, and we went through this all revalidate, you know, revalidation process, all those things. And this woman, thanks to her, because she intervened, um, was able to put me in place so I could register. So I did, and <laughs> I had gone in January, and school started in March, so you know I had time to go through this process incredibly bureaucratic and I was a foreign student mm -hmm. some okay. more so right and uh, <clears throat> so that was okay you know th that was the way I was going to get in that was fine lots of stamps right <laughs> all over the place but the first thing I had to do was pass a physical mm. 
And I always remember the place for the physical was Palma 38, which is a street right downtown, a block away from the Socano. <laughs> so my aunt showed me how to go on. We went on the bus. She went with me to show me how to get there on the bus and how to come back. And we had to be there at 6 in the morning. So I took the bus real early in the morning. I went there, and yeah, there were like 200 girls standing <laughs> in line, you know. And there we are, all in line. And there was this redhead, <laughs> tall redhead. And uh, we happened to be like two or three people apart in the line. And she started asking questions, and I could tell she didn't speak Spanish very well. So then I spoke to her in English. She said, oh, you speak English. <laughs> she was registering in the medical school. She mm. was from Los Angeles. Mm. Her father was the head of the general hospital in Los Angeles, and she was going to medical school at UNA she was for the first time, right? So we kind of got together, and they gave us, it must have been 20 different sheets of paper, kind of color-coded, different colors. That was all these different tests we had to do take right and so you had to fill them all out and I mean I had been in Mexico City maybe a week so I could speak Spanish but you know it was like not really knowing things too well so we kind of struggled through this whole process and some of the young women there would kind of help us out but they were just throwing you in there wasn't mm -hmm. much time mm -hmm. to help each other so finally about noon <laughs> being tired and you couldn't have any breakfast because they had done blood tests you know whatever uh, we're standing in line everybody goes into this one room where they close the door right away well it was to test your eyes they said so I get to the door I walk in and they asked me for a paper and I couldn't quite get it out fast enough and ah, the woman got mad everyone was tired mm -hmm. And she said, damn it. So, you know, so I handed her my folder, and she went through and picked out the right paper, shoved me in the room. It was totally dark. And so I uh, go sit down in this chair. I finally found the chair, sat down, and the lights go on. You know, they're testing your eyes. So he put a big E on there. What is it? E. E. You put a bigger and bigger and bigger one. And I kept saying E, yeah. not A. <laughs> right? That's really so funny. then they threw me out, right? So a week later, I came to get the results. And I go to the desk, and the woman said, No, you didn't pass the test. I said, Oh, which one? You know, so she looked. You can't see, you're blind. And I looked at her, I said, Look at me. I said, I'm here. <laughs> Well, it says here you're blind. Oh, I said, I forgot my glasses that day. I am very near, I was very nearsighted. Uh -huh. But then I found out what it was. Uh -huh. I realized by that time I had been studying some Spanish, you know. I realized I had said E instead of A. <laughs> so that almost kept me out. She and then she accepted it. You know, uh -huh. it was like uh, this bureaucracy kind of has its way of working. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I got in. And it was, after that, it was just wonderful. Mm. I took Spanish, um, and my Spanish teacher was this wonderful woman. Her name was Vallarta. Well, it turns out her husband was a Nobel Prize winning physicist who taught at the university. Mm. And she, through the American Benjamin Franklin Institute that taught English, 
they had decided to have a Spanish class for some of the Americans that wanted Spanish, and they had asked her to do it, and so she just loved doing it. But there was only one other person in my class. There were just two of us. It was just wonderful, and so we'd read the newspapers. Lucky. It was a thing mm. of augmenting vocabulary, having mm -hmm. confidence in reading. You know, that. So I, took the, I was in class with her for about six months mm -hmm. because when I first started classes, there were 80 of us in each classroom. The door would be locked. This was at San Ildefonso. And the building was so incredible. It is so incredible. This is colonial building from the 16th century, uh, huge corridors, huge staircases, mm. the murals on the ceilings, you know, uh, and with a great tradition. And these teachers that were just so different to anything I had imagined. Several of them were revolutionaries, you know, Mauricio Magdaleno, for example, in literature. Um, all these great wow. teachers. But <laughs> you could never ask a question. I mean, they would come in, they'd lecture, mm -hmm. and they'd leave. Mm -hmm. And that was that. Mm -hmm. And once in a while, there would be one that would kind of be having a coffee at a coffee shop, the Chinos. The Chinos had their coffee shops there. And Mauricio Magdalena, who was a chain smoker, would be sitting there having his coffee, and we'd sit around. He'd sing, say, ah, venga, venga, vamos a platicar un poco. But other than that, teachers were pretty mm -hmm. unapproachable. Mm -hmm. And is this the time? Mm -hmm. are, they're probably building Ciudad Universitaria. Yes, at they, that were time, building, right? they were building yeah. Ciudad Universitaria. And so the first ones to go out were Filosofía y Letras. Okay, so they that's why you were at San Ildefonso. I was at San Ildefonso. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so then uh, I went, I think the year I went, 55, I went to law school. I think that was the first year that they were at Ciudad Universitaria. Mm -hmm. And the aunt I lived with, Artemisa, even if she had all these rules about what people would say and how you're supposed to behave, uh, she had been a concert pianist. And in the 20s, she had left Mexico and gone to Paris and mm. lived in Paris, and she had played in different places. So she also had a very cosmopolitan side to mm -hmm. her. And, and she kind of knew that young women like to go out and learn. <laughs> And mm -hmm. she had many women friends that were artists and writers. Mm -hmm. So um, she had that side as well. So if I stayed within certain limits, I could do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I learned quickly, like when I had been there a couple of weeks, she took me to her doctor's uh, office because he had two young girls my age. And she asked him, you know, if it would be all right for them to... Uh, come to the house and have lunch with me so they would meet me and I would have some friends. And he said, no, have her come to my house. And I walked into that house. It was this wonderful Mexican hospitality that whoever comes, you sit down and eat and you're a friend before lunch is over, mm -hmm. you know. And they're still my dear friends mm -hmm. now, 60 wow. years later. Um, and so I learned very quickly, like both of them were at La Normal Superior. Mm -hmm. And their mother was totally Mexicana. You can't go anywhere without a chaperone. You can't do this. So both of them had novios, and they could go to the movies on Saturday afternoons, but they had to go with a chaperone, you know, that whole thing. 
But I quickly learned they'd get out of class at nine o'clock at night. Their lawyers would be there and take them home. I mean, it was this kind of crazy thing that you had to learn how to uh, maneuver within those parameters. Within those yeah. parameters. Mm-hmm. We could never quote go out on a date, but Mrs. Escobar, that was the mother of my friends, she would have big parties at her house. Her son was a student in the medical school. He'd bring all his friends. So we'd have great parties right there at the house, you know, dance all night and the whole thing, have big picnics, you know, things like that yeah. as as groups. Mm-hmm. So this was wonderful. I had never had anything like that in Douglas. I mean, this was like just being in heaven. And um, and one of my friends, Raquel Tocaya, she was studying history. Oh, man, so we'd go all over Mexico City, all the churches, all the museums, mm-hmm. everywhere, and she would know, and she was researching, and so I'd go with her everywhere. We just had great fun every weekend going to a different church, or sometimes mm-hmm. later, it turned out, that you'd go to, school, you'd go to class, and then something would be going on, whatever, and somebody would start, se muere el día, se muere el día. No classes, you know, no classes. For some political reason, yeah. ah, whatever, you know, anything. And especially in before the vacations in May, people would try to make them longer, right? So se muere el día. So if a lot of them got together, there was only one entrance that was open to go into the building, they would close off that entrance, so the teacher would come and couldn't come in, so they'd leave. <laughs> so then you'd be upstairs waiting for class, there'd be no class. So by 10 o'clock, you'd know there was not going to be another class that day. They'd take off, right? So the first time that happened, I was appalled. I mean, how could you do this? this is... So I went home. I got home at 10.30, and I answered, what are you doing here now? I said, Senorio, yeah, there's no class. Oh, she went into a rage. I told you you can go to university. They waste all their time. They don't do anything there. And that's not a place for a good young lady. I'm going to take you over to La Ibero Americana or something. So I said, oh, okay, well, I'm, I don't think it'll happen anymore. I said, I just, you know, I kind of talked her out of it. And it would be a lot of trouble to go through that whole thing over again, right? So the next time it happened, I didn't go home. So what do you do? You're downtown Mexico City. Uh-huh. Well, there are all kinds of places to go. And there would be maybe one or two other girls there, and we'd take off. And So I got to know the downtown Mexico City so uh-huh. well. The best place for coffee, the best place for chocolate. El Prado, had, El Prado Hotel had a movie house that started at 11 o'clock in the morning. You know, there were all kinds of things to do downtown. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just sit yeah. in La Alameda, bookstores, uh-huh. the museums, all kinds of stuff. So I got to know the downtown just beautifully mm. because for two years, any time the day would die, <laughs> I wouldn't go home. <laughs> <laughs> and how, uh, what part of the city did your tia oh, she lived, live in? She lived two blocks away from uh, El El Angel, El Angel on Reforma, oh, yeah, uh-huh. two blocks. She lived on Hamburgo. Okay. Uh-huh. And Hamburgo and Varsovia, there is now a great big hotel there where the house used to be. Wow. It was a beautiful house. I just, oh, it was the first time I had a room of my own. Mm-hmm. I had always shared with my brothers and sisters that, you know, there were so many of us. Mm-hmm. And here she was a widow with a great big house. I had a room all to myself. Wow. It was just 
wonderful. <laughs> That's kind of in the area of Condesa. No, it's, uh, it was Colonia Roma. Is that, Roma. No, Colonia Juarez. Uh-huh, okay. It was Juarez and Roma, then Condesa further mm-hmm. up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the Instituto Benjamin Franklin, where I took the Spanish classes, mm-hmm. was on Yucatan, mm-hmm. which was kind of Condesa. I would walk over there. And so I got to know that part of town really well, too. And then on the other side of Reforma, that where the rivers are, the mm-hmm. uh, was the uh, IFAL, the Instituto Frances, where I took French, because I would take French three times a week and Spanish two times a week. And you yeah. stayed on there, so you, I stayed you, on you there did your until, doctorate, right? Yes, I did. Uh-huh. And uh, I did it with... I was telling you, I had these wonderful Spanish refugee teachers as well mm. because they were well represented. And my Fleeing mentor. F- uh, Franco's government in yes, at that time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. My, my mentor was Recasenciches. He was a sociologist. I met him the first time in 1955. I had just gone to Ciudad Universitaria. And it was so beautiful out there, you know, these big pepper trees mm. and the, the big uh, spaces with lawn interspersed with volcanic rock. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And so I'd come out of class about uh, about 1 o'clock. You know, I had classes from 7 in the morning to 1. And, and then I'd stay and go to philosophy classes uh, that started at 4. And so sometimes it was really a hassle to go all the way home and come back. You know, buses... I had I had about an hour bus ride, and sometimes you come back for the four o'clock. They'd be full, full, full. You couldn't get on, so sometimes I would just stay out there. But there weren't any cafeterias that mm-hmm. those first two years. There was nothing out there, mm-hmm. and so it was a debate, you know, whether to stay or not stay, whatever. So one day I got out of class at one, and I was thinking, well, I'm not going home. It's just too much of a hassle. I had a a sandwich in my in my bag, and I was sitting there, and I was reading a book in English. I would, because I I kind of missed reading in English. I loved re- learning Spanish, but you know it was kind of fun. And I think there was this novel. It was a real famous novel at that moment by a young French woman. Bonjour Tristesse, I think is the name of it. It was a big thing. All the young people were reading Bonjour Tristesse. <laughs> and I found an English secondhand one, so I was reading that. And this older man walked by, and he he looked, and I had the, I wasn't reading, I had put it down on this, and he looked at it, and he looked up at me, and he said, Estás leyendo Bonjour Tristesse? <laughs> But in English, no in Francis. So I said, well, uh, bueno, lo quise leer en inglés porque prefiero. So then he started talking to me in English. So we sat and talked, you know, and so uh, it turned out that um, he was a sociologist and he had just arrived in Mexico. It was his first year because he had been at the UN mm-hmm. at the uh, Committee for Minority Rights or not minority, it had us, you know, there were all the refugees, and then they were starting to work on the, on the rights of, uh, Declaration of Human Rights, mm-hmm. and they had been working on that, and they were just putting up bureaucracies around that. Mm-hmm. This was like 
still, you know, the formation of the UN was still pretty new. Mm -hmm. And so he had been there, and he had just arrived in Mexico. And uh, so then he said to me, well, are you taking sociology? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I teach sociology. You should come to my class. And I said, I can't change it. Oh, yes, we can change it. <laughs> <laughs> at the university, you could never change classes. Oh, I mean, is that right? yeah. you know, once at that time, the system was that you got, oh, let me tell you, registration was a real problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was kind of afraid, but he said he'd do it. I said, okay, you know, so that was fine. So I changed into his class. But let me tell you about registration. Um, when I went to register, I had two applications, one for medical school and one for law school, because I couldn't decide oh, wow. which way to yeah. go. And I had taken enough science in the early bachelor's part you know, to do that. So I was standing there in line. The line was huge. And about five people before I get to the end of the line, they close. Two mm. o'clock, boom, come mm. back tomorrow, okay? So the next day you go earlier, right? Mm -hmm. So we were getting there like at four in the morning oh to get gosh. in line. <laughs> because otherwise you weren't going to make it. Uh -huh. So I got there about five, so I was down about 100 or whatever. And <clears throat> so then the line for law school was a lot shorter. So I thought, well, I've always liked, you know, that kind of thing. So I went over to the law school thing because my chances of getting in were a lot better to get my application. Wow. So, that, I mean, you know, things like that have, the lines were really long. And um, so I got in and I also was registered. Then I decided I also wanted to do philosophy after I'd gone a week to classes. My introduction to law class was so fascinating that I decided I really wanted to do the philosophy part too. So I took his class, but at that time sociology was taught almost more like philosophy. It was more, you know, it was ideas. It wasn't so much, it was ideas that were supposedly empirical, but it wasn't mm -hmm. really empirical. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, and so I had a very philosophical approach to sociology. So later on, when I came here and I went back into looking at sociology, yeah, 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 you know, I had taken a bunch of sociology, mm -hmm. but it was not geared in the same way. Mm -hmm. I never took demography, for example, you know, or stuff like that. But the law work, the theoretical law work I did was sociological jurisprudence. Mm -hmm. And and so you're supposed to use <laughs> now empirical work. And so I, I had to go back and after I, when I came here and started thinking again, um, well, to get in and learn some statistics and stuff that I had not had mm -hmm. in my training there because it was a very different approach. It was much more quantitative at that uh, here yeah. at that time. Is that well? Right it was becoming becoming so. U yes, mm -hmm. U.S. sociology was becoming mm -hmm. very quantitative, mm -hmm. and and there had been all these critiques that I had learned against quantitative because I had taken a very philosophical. Yeah. And see, like like I said, he studied in in Berlin. He had studied in Germany, and he had studied with Bever, and you know what I mean? Yeah, so he, uh -huh. he, it was that very classic approach, and it was a wonderful way for me to study, yeah. 
but the the discipline of sociology changed dramatically mm-hmm. uh, when I came here. And mm-hmm. he was very excited about what was happening here. He was, but yeah. he hadn't he hadn't really integrated it into his mm-hmm. work, uh, and I don't think he ever did, uh, because basically he was a jurist and it was jurisprudence. Yeah. But it was a use of sociological information for uh, looking at law. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm so thankful for that because yeah. uh, it gave me a way of looking at my reality that has been really important in mm. my life. That and the other thing that happened at UNAM, which was really important, was there was a lot of philosophical questioning is, ¿qué es lo mexicano? Like I had classes with Sea, Antropología Filosófica was his class. And so the question of, ¿qué es lo mexicano? ¿Qué es, quién es el mexicano? was central. That was an important uh, trend. And, uh, and that was very helpful in looking at issues of civil rights here and how to educate uh, ethnic groups. Oh, I'm sure, yeah, and so right. I used it so much at Pima. <clears throat> that was a base. And mm. together at Pima with Bill Lewis, uh, an African-American theologian who mm-hmm. came to teach African history, I mean African-American history, together, you know, he had been reading George Lulax and I had been reading oh, yeah. uh, Sea and Gauss. And so we were able to really hone in on looking at teaching history in that, in that fashion. Wow, your students and were lucky. <laughs> well, I don't know. We did a lot of experimentation. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good, too. <laughs> yeah. So well, anyway. can, can I ask you, mm-hmm. um, so at that moment at UNAM, so this would have been going into the late 50s, early 60s? Yeah, still yeah I finished in 61. 61. So you're in, you're finishing up at UNAM in 19, early 1960s, and that's just before the student movement of mm-hmm. the mid to late 1960s. But I would, I can imagine that you're getting some exposure to some Marxist thinking oh, at that yeah, moment. And absolutely. can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I had a number of teachers that were Marxists all along my career. And, um, and as a matter of fact, for example, the class on the history of philosophy, I took with three different teachers, mm. and it was totally different each time. I took it with a Marxist, I took it with a, a Jesuit, and I took it with just a regular historian, right? Wow, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I was very aware of this way of thinking, which to me, of course, was a revelation. And I sought it out, although Recasensiches mm-hmm. was not inclined in that way. Mm-hmm. He was very much against totalitarianism and mm-hmm. very much against the Soviet Union. However, uh, other teachers I had were very much, very knowledgeable on Marxists, and so I read a lot of Marx. Um, And also, politically, UNAM was very important for me because students were really empowered at that time, and it was used in a quite responsible way, I would say, especially in comparison to now. But the big discussions, like any study groups, right? The big discussion was, well, uh, should we support the PRI or not? Do you change it from within or do you go against it? (laughs) That was a big thing Mm -hmm. because everyone was very critical of the PRI, Mm -hmm. but the PRI was Mm all-powerful. So 
if you get into it, you change it from within, but maybe you should not. Maybe you should change it from the outside. And that discussion was constant, and it all we would have them all the time. And there was, and so I I got involved in student politics. I wasn't supposed to because there's a an amendment in the Mexican Constitution where if you're a foreigner, you can't get involved in politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they take that seriously. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and and so I had been warned over and over again. Mm-hmm. But my curiosity was more. <laughs> than my fear. <laughs> and the first time I remember that I really got involved in, in that I really opened my eyes was I was coming home. I was still in school in the centro uh, downtown. So the bus I take would go up um, Reforma. And uh, the American embassy at that time was on Reforma, not far from El Caballito. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so the bus passed by, and there was a big demonstration in front of the embassy, and I wondered what it was. So the next stop, I got off, and I went back to check it out. Well, it was because of Arvinds, you know. Arvinds had been oh. overthrown, and there was this Guatemala. big demonstration. Mm-hmm. And so I started really looking, and so it's, then I started picking up conversations at the university on that. So I joined in a couple of groups that were really uh, supporting the Arvinds group, right? And so slowly I got involved in university politics. And I remember the first time they had an election for um, president of the student association. (laughs) There was a green party and the blue party. And you'd go to vote, and there would be the candidate for the green party standing in front of the box where you put in your vote and then there would be the one with the blue one so they all knew how you voted oh my gosh wow <laughs> so when i got in and i saw that i walked out i thought i'm not gonna yeah. let anyone know how I right vote. show your cards <laughs> but oh, and so uh i started getting really involved in different groups especially when i went to law school mm-hmm. i i just found it fascinating there was a group also that had a scenic loop university-wide at university city and I, I had a ticket to those, you know, you got them free. It was like on Thursday nights or something, once a month. And the first one I went to, it was eye-opening. It was a Salt of the Earth film, which mm-hmm. was not being shown in this country. It was the first time in my life I had seen a film that had anything to do with the reality that I knew about. Wow. And yeah. I was just fascinated by it. So after that, I went to all the Marxist club scenic loop things, you know, I got very, very involved. And I had to keep that far away from my aunt. Yeah. Uh, it was something I did, and I actually, I didn't tell any of my friends. I mean, my friends at school knew about it, but not my friends outside of school mm-hmm. or my family. I, I would just go. So I did a lot of political work, uh, and... Uh, I, like I was the representative from our student association to the railroad workers. Um, oh, there were some uh, big union. strikes at that moment. Yeah, going big on. demonstrations. Strikes, yeah. yeah, and so I was a part of some of those mm-hmm. uh, things. Uh, we also they put up the price on the buses from twenty five cents to thirty, and uh, we decided to do something about it. So. That very day, as the bus would drive in to University City, there was a circuit 
went around, right? It would come in through philosophy and law and all around and end up at the, uh, the station uh, or the, you know, the, the end station. So <clears throat> they'd come and stop at the law school and we'd take the bus and drive it into the parking lot under the school. <laughs> within two hours, we had about 30 buses, and by the end of the day, it was causing a big problem. <laughs> and um, so the next day, they kept taking buses, but see, the police and the soldiers couldn't go on campus at that time. Oh, right, because so it's was, autonomous. It was autonomous, mm -hmm. yeah. It, I say was because Yeah, exactly, no yeah. <laughs> and um, so within two days, the price went back to 25 cents. And so we were really happy, but then some of the people got into big trouble. But how I was always kind of really in the background because I had to be so careful. Yeah, right. I didn't get caught, but uh -huh. I was really worried for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was afraid I'd get thrown out. But, uh, yeah, so there was, there was a lot of activity. But I always remember a very dear friend, Abelardo Villegas. He was in philosophy. And uh, it was thanks to him and Eduardo Blanquel that I got through the, because they were just so supportive. I had and a friend, Mercedes Arnal, the, the four of us, we would just work so hard and they were so supportive. Uh, he always said to me, well, he said, look, the way Mexico is now, if you're with three people, you know that one of them is there to spy on you. <laughs> and that was in the 50s. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> so it's not like if uh, things, you know what I mean, things were burbling all over, yeah. but it was just kind of contained. Uh -huh. And the brie was very, very uh, good at, at um, getting people to join them mm -hmm. with promises of change. The people was an incredible organizer. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. they organized it from the very bottom, mm -hmm. and they would buy out people. They would find out. And so some of that buy out, it was really effective because people would get something that they needed for their neighborhood, that they needed for their, you know, but it was very much a patron kind mm -hmm. of system. Yeah. And, but it worked well enough that they had the votes. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why it lasted as long as it did. Yeah, by that time, yeah. 1960s, yeah. it would have been in power for almost yeah. 40 years yeah. already. And it was yeah. very strong. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, there were people who disappeared. There were, you know, all mm -hmm. those things happened. Yeah. But they were very powerful. And so that's why that discussion, do you change it from within or do you attack from without? Yeah. And, and that was a very alive uh, mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. I bet it was. In my uh, work in the Mayo Valley in southern mm -hmm. Sonora for my dissertation research, mm -hmm. I uh, interviewed a really interesting guy. Um, he ran. He runs a museum in um, uh, where it's in Huatabampo, actually, mm -hmm. uh, among other things. And he's a he's a school teacher. Uh -huh. But he was telling me about the 1950s in mm -hmm. that area, mm -hmm. and um, you know there was a lot happening. Yeah. They were developing land for agriculture, mm -hmm. and there were protests were bubbling up, and people there too disappeared. Yeah. You know, yeah. and he was. Um, it was a very, you could tell it was a very, um, he was traumatized mm -hmm. by that, you know, yeah. of course. And, uh, you know, it, it was a tough moment for a lot of people. Very there. hard. Yeah. Very hard. But he was very powerful. Oh my gosh. I mean, right. And then I got to see the, there, the way that political patronage worked in terms of 
session.